0: me invite you to open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 19. We'll be in Psalm 19 this morning. and, And this morning we're going to talk about the Bible. Now, of course, every sermon you hear from this platform is about the Bible, right? We're, we're a church that loves God's word and wants to be word-centered. But this morning, especially, we are going to look at how God has revealed himself to us in his word. And we're going to do that by looking at Psalm 19. And, and I need to be honest for a moment that, that uh, the timing of this sermon is very intentional, right? I know it's New Year's Eve and tomorrow morning, many of you are, are maybe trying some new New Year's resolutions for the year. Maybe you're aiming to go to the gym more often, or to break off some habit that you've been trying to kick for years, or, or whatever it might be. Maybe you've even made a New Year's resolution to get into God's Word more, which I, I hope you would do that, um, but I, I think it's a good thing for us at the end of one year, and as we're starting the next, to kind of pause and remind ourselves of the gift it is to have God's Word. The gift it is to to get to open this book and read it and study it and grow by it. So we're going to look at Psalm 19 this morning, and I'm going to read all of the psalm for us, but we're going to focus most of our time just on the second half of the chapter, and you'll see why pretty quickly. The The first half of the chapter is all about how God has revealed himself to us in nature. That you can look at the sun, the moon, and the stars, or the Grand Canyon, or your favorite beach, wherever that might be, and and you can go to those places and and have a sense of awe and wonder that points you to a creator. You can look at nature and, and see the power of God on display, but you can't, for instance, go to the Grand Canyon and look out over the vastness of that space and think, ah, I'm a sinner who needs a savior and that God has sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to be my redeemer. The Grand Canyon can't tell you that unless there's a certain rock that somebody has carved that into, but I don't think that's the case, right? Nature doesn't tell us everything we need to know about God, but God by his grace has given us his word, which tells us all that we need to know about the Lord. That God has revealed himself to us in the way of salvation in his word. And so that's what the second half of Psalm 19 is all about. And so we're going to open it and read it this morning. Let me read for us now Psalm 19. This is the word of the Lord. Do you take heed how you listen? The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. And I'll remind you something we say often, that it is absolutely true, and it's given to us in love for our good. And especially this morning, I want you to see that. I want you to see that God's word is given to you from God the Father in love for your good. Now, as we walk through Psalm 19 this morning, we're going to do so under three headings to organize our thoughts. We're going to look at the nature of God's word, the value of God's word, and the application of God's word. So the nature, value, and application of God's word. Now, as we look at the first couple of verses, verses 7 through 9, you may notice a pattern that's in place. This is a poetic pattern that David is using to highlight the nature of God's Word. First, he gives us a description of God's Word. We've got the testimony, the precepts, the commandments, the law. These are really just synonyms for God's Word. They're synonyms for the Bible. But then David ties each of those descriptions with something that God's Word does to us. And I think it's important for us to remember that that God's word is living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It it transforms us as we read it. So David writes first in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. It's perfect. God's word is without error, right? The, the, The theological word that we'll use for that is inerrancy, that God's word is perfectly true in all of its parts. It never misleads or misguides us. God's word never gives us bad advice. It is perfectly true. As one commentator put it, the law of the Lord has divine integrity. And it's really helpful to remember that God's word has divine integrity because it is perfect. And in its perfection, God's word, it says here, revives the soul, meaning it gives life to us. And I think David's using that phrase, revive the soul, kind of in two different senses. There's the first part where he's talking about salvation, that in God's providence, he uses God's word to bring our dead, cold hearts to life. Right? I think of what Romans 10 says along these lines. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So there's one sense where reviving the soul is something that God does in bringing about salvation in our lives. I think if you think about your own testimony, I'm certain hundred percent of us would say part of the process of you coming to know the Lord involved God's word and it being preached and the Lord using his word to revive your soul. But there's another sense that I think David is using revive the soul, and that's that the Lord uses his word to revive our weary souls, our tired and worn out, downtrodden souls. The Lord uses his word to strengthen us. You think of it as spiritual food that nourishes us. And I wonder, just as a a brief application question for you to consider later, when you come to God's Word, do you appreciate the spiritual meal, the feast that God offers you in His Word? When you sit down to read it on your own, when you gather in this room for worship, when you gather with your community group or in family worship or wherever it is that you're opening God's Word, does your heart really appreciate that the Lord revives you and feeds your soul through his word. The next description that that David gives us in the second part of verse 7 is this. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So God's word is sure. It is trustworthy in ways that no other book could match because this book is uniquely given to us by the Lord. You can think of 2 Timothy 3.16. Right, All scripture is breathed out by God. Its testimony is sure. But I find it really interesting that, that that testimony has an effect on the Lord's people. That the sure testimony of the Lord makes the simple person wise. And in biblical terms, calling somebody simple was a bit of a, of a biblical insult. Right? But here he's saying that God's word makes us wise. But wisdom here is not talking about just biblical knowledge. Biblical wisdom is not equivalent with getting an A plus on a Bible quiz. Biblical wisdom is knowing how to apply God's word to your life and actually doing it. It's not just knowing what you're supposed to do, it's doing it as well. That's what wisdom is in the Bible. And so David is saying here that when we read God's word, it can help the simple man become wise. In other words, getting more and more of God's word into your head and into your heart will bring about more wisdom in the way that you live that God's word will inform your priorities. It'll inform the way that you schedule your time and the way you think about your family life. Reading and studying and applying God's word will bring about more wisdom. Then David says in verse 8, this next description of God's word is that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. And precepts, again, is just another word for God's word and his commandments. So these precepts, these commands are right and they bring joy to our hearts. But I think we need to pause for a second and realize that when, when the unbelieving world around us considers God's word and especially God's commandments, joy is the last thing on their mind. Your unbelieving coworkers and neighbors and family members, when they consider God's commands, they might even view those as oppressive or tyrannical. The unbelieving world doesn't want restrictions placed on them, and yet, as, as believers, we know that those limits and those rules from God, they're given in love for our good. That God's commands are given in love for your good. So that means that living within the confines of God's law, it brings life. It brings joy. It, It rejoices the heart. I might even say that living, aiming to try to follow the Lord makes your life go better. And that's what David says down in verse 11. Moreover, by them, by the Lord's commands, is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. So by God's commands, we are warned from danger, and in keeping them, there's great reward. Things tend to go better. That's not to say that things go perfectly. We all know we live in a a fallen world, and the effects of the fall touch every area of our life. But I know this, if we're aiming to follow God's word and to be obedient to it, life tends to go better. And we know that's true because God, the creator of the world, is the designer of the world. He's the one who designed how the world is supposed to work. And so when we submit to the designer's plan, things tend to go better. Earlier this week, my wife and I were trying to put together a, a bunk bed for our children. We bought it from Ikea And if you know anything about IKEA furniture, it comes with an instruction booklet about that thick. And my natural inclination is to ignore that and try to just build the thing myself. But my wife is, yeah, you're shaking your heads. Don't do that. My wife is the the wise one who opens it up and tells me, no, that piece doesn't go there. Use this bolt instead of that screw. And things go better when you follow the instruction booklet as far as Ikea furniture goes. And I think that's the same for life. When we follow the designer's playbook, so to speak, things tend to go better. As much as it seems crazy to the watching world around us, when we seek to obey God's commands, there is great reward, to use David's phrase. Things tend to go better. And look again at the second part of verse 8 to this next description. David says, The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. That God's word is pure without pollution of any kind, and it enlightens, it refreshes, it renews his weary people. It brings light to our lives. I think here of Psalm 119, I love that in in, in the book of Psalms, both 19 and 119 are, are about God's word. If you're ever just wanting to reflect on the beauty and nature of God's word, go to a Psalm that has 19 in it, and you'll be on the right track. But Psalm 119, 105, the Lord reminds us, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. That God's word enlightens our hearts and our minds. And what's amazing is is the more and more that you get into God's word, the more and more the Lord enlightens it to you. I found that the more time I spend in God's word, the more God's word makes sense the more the Holy Spirit starts to enlighten his word to my heart and helps my soul to really understand the depths of Scripture. Okay, so we've seen the nature of God's word, that it's perfect, that it's sure, that it's pure. Now let's take a look at our second heading, The Value of God's Word. David writes this in verse 9, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Let me just focus on that phrase in the middle of that verse, that the fear of the Lord endures forever. That God's word lasts forever. In a world where everything seems to degrade and disappear in an instant, God's word lasts into eternity There's a phrase that gets used a lot in technology circles that they call this planned obsolescence. And no doubt you've experienced this where something you purchased, a a device, an appliance, something for your home in six months, maybe eight months, it's broken. It doesn't connect with other things and it doesn't work anymore. A little secret for you, that's by design, right? Devices these days are planned to fail, my parents, we were just at their house a few weeks ago, my parents have the same refrigerator that they bought before I was born. They've never repaired it. The thing is still going strong more than 34 years later. If you buy a refrigerator today and it lasts more than five years, you're doing pretty good. right? Everything around us seems to decay so quickly. So how much more encouraging is it for us to look at God's word and remember that it endures forever. That God's promises endure forever. His promises never fail. This is such a great encouragement for us. There's great value in clinging to something that lasts forever. And David writes this in verse 10. More to be desired are they, the commands and the word of God. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So here David is comparing the best things in life with God's word. He's thinking of gold and honey, which for him was the best of candy, kids. He's saying even if you compare the sweetest candy that you love, and you take that and you compare it with God's word, God's word wins out every time. This is what we need to desire. This is what we ought to desire. And here's what I know. That all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, would say that verse 10 sounds great in theory. It sounds like something we should aspire to, to want to desire God's word like that. But in practice, I know it's true that that's not always the desire of our hearts. We don't always put God's word in its rightful place in our hearts. And so the question I want to ask this morning is is how do we grow our desire for God's word? I want to believe and value God's word more and more. I want to believe that it's sweeter than honey for my soul. So what can we do, practically speaking, to grow our desire for God's word? I'd suggest three things. First, we need to remember that the Bible is the word of God. We say that phrase often, the word of God, and it is a synonym for the Bible, but we're saying something particular in that. That the Bible itself is the very word of God. That's how Second Timothy 3 puts it, that, that all scripture is breathed out by God. So quite literally, what scripture says, God says. And when you approach your Bible, you should remember that the words that you're reading are the very words that God intended to put there. I think of 2 Peter chapter 1 where he writes, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So yes, the Lord used individual men over the course of several thousands of years to write down the words of the Bible, but it was the Holy Spirit who carried them along as they did so. Just to illustrate this, a few nights ago, my family and I were over at somebody's house for dinner, and they had one of those little toy basketball hoops mounted up on the wall. And my two-year-old son, Titus, was running around with one of those little basketballs. And so as he's running towards the basketball hoop, I pick him up, hold him up over the hoop so he can dunk the ball through it. Now, did Titus dunk the basketball? Technically, yes. But he was carried along by me the whole way. That's how God's word came about, that it was the Holy Spirit carrying along the authors of scripture to give us the word that God intends for us to have today. So we know that every word in this book is from the Lord. So I want you to just have that in mind as you approach God's word, appreciate that fact that God has spoken to you and is still speaking to you in his word. Second thing I think we can do to grow our desire for God's Word is to turn to God's Word before we look anywhere else. When you've got a big decision to make, when you're facing some challenge, when you're struggling with motivation, or fear, or loneliness, or stress, or sadness, when you're facing really anything big in your life, I would encourage you to make it a point to open God's Word first. It can be so tempting to, to turn to other sources, right? To, to look to Google, to text a friend, to look anywhere else for answers. But I, I want to encourage you, before you do any of those things, to go to God's word first. Make it a habit to look to him for the wisdom that you need. Third way to grow our desire for God's word is to remember the gift it is to have the Bible in your language For the majority of church history, that wasn't the case. Really, more than 500 years ago, the Bibles that were available, there was really only probably one printed Bible per village. It was written in Latin. None of the people spoke Latin. And the priests may have been able to read the words, but most of them didn't understand what they said. And this was the case for the majority of church history until the Lord brought about a man named William Tyndale. He's one of my favorite reformers from that period of time in the 1500s. But William Tyndale made it his life's mission to get the Bible into English. In fact, he did that against the wishes of the Pope of his day. I want to read just one quote from William Tyndale that I think embodies this spirit of how passionate he was to get the Bible into the common language so that everybody could read it. Not just the priest in the local village, but every single worker, the, the, the shoemaker, the, the cast iron worker, the plowboy, everyone to have a copy of God's word that they can read and study and understand. Listen to what William Tyndale once said He says, I defy the Pope and all his laws. And if God spares my life long enough, I will cause the boy that drives the plow to know the scriptures better than you do. Tyndale devoted his life to translating the Bible in, from the original languages into English. He finished the Greek New Testament, translating it into English in 1525. And he was almost finished translating the Old Testament from Hebrew into English Until in 1536, he was sentenced to death. And William Tyndale was burned at the stake for the great crime of translating the Bible into English. It's really only in the last 500 years that people like you and me have been able to own a copy of the Bible. That we've had the ability to, to open it and read it in our own language. And really, that's something unique to are part of the world. Uh, Wycliffe Bible Translators is a ministry that works to to translate the Bible and and by their estimation at this moment there are a hundred million people alive who do not have any part of the Bible in their language. A hundred million people that have no verse of the Bible in their first language. It is a real privilege and gift to have God's word in English, or in whatever your first language might be. Let me just encourage you to to remember that and be aware of that as you open your Bible and read it. And I think as you do, this will grow your appreciation and your value of God's word. So we've seen the nature of God's word, the value of God's word. Let's look together at our last section, the application of God's word And as you look at these next few verses in Psalm 19, what's really happening behind the scenes is that the Holy Spirit has been working in David's heart, that the Holy Spirit has started to convict David of some of the sin that remains in his heart. And so David prays this in verse 12, who can discern his errors, declare me innocent from hidden faults, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So David is saying here, God, if there's hidden faults in my heart, make me aware of those. Help me to see those so I can repent of them and turn back to you. What a great prayer that is. And then he prays, keep me back from presumptuous or obvious sins. I think what David is praying here is the same thing Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's prayer, right? Lead me not into temptation. And so David prays a prayer that all of us should pray when we're feeling convicted of our sin. David prays, declare me innocent. Think about how significant that is. For King David to say, declare me innocent. Did David deserve to be declared innocent? Of course not. We need only to think of the episode with Bathsheba where he committed adultery and then tried to cover it up by committing murder. David does not deserve to be declared innocent. So how is it that he's praying this prayer? How is it that God could answer this prayer for David to be declared innocent from hidden faults? I think what's really happening here is David is asking for forgiveness of his sins. Forgiveness that's only made possible because of Jesus. I think this is the clearest connection to the gospel that we get in Psalm 19. That Jesus Christ alone is the one who's truly innocent from hidden faults. Jesus alone is the one who's innocent of presumptuous sins. He alone is the blameless one who lived a perfectly righteous life without any sin. And friends, because Jesus was totally sinless, because he was perfectly obedient to all of God's commands, he earned perfect righteousness. And then here's the amazing thing. For, for, for everyone who clings to the Lord Jesus by faith, that righteousness that he has, he gives to you. That when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he took your sins on himself. He bore the guilt of all of your sins on himself, and he gives you his righteousness. And what this means is that when God the Father looks down on you, he doesn't see your sins. He doesn't see your mistakes and your faults. Instead, when God the Father looks on you, dear child of God, he sees the righteousness of Christ draped over you like a cloak. Because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf, you are declared innocent. You are declared forgiven. You are declared wiped clean of all the mistakes you've made. Not because of your own works, but because of what Jesus Christ has done on your behalf. So what are we to do with that? It's wonderful news that we're declared innocent by God. What then are we to do? I think we are to pray along with David in verse 14. He writes, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Our response to this incredible forgiveness that's offered to us in the gospel, our response is to pray for the Lord to change us to ask the Lord to to change our speech and to change our hearts. You know, thinking about this phrase, the words of my mouth, I kept coming to mind a, a phrase that my mom used to say to us as kids. She would say, garbage in, garbage out. Anyone else have a a mom that told them that? Just me? Okay, a few of us, yes. Uh, What would happen is we'd be watching TV, and my mom would walk through the room, and of course the moment she walks in is the moment an inappropriate something happens on TV. And so she'd grab the remote, turn it off, say, garbage in, garbage out, and then she'd leave the room. And we all got the point, right? That that if we let garbage into our eyes, into our ears, it's going to seep into our hearts and then seep out into our lives. And so for us, as we're looking at verse 14, if we're asking God to help the words of our mouths be acceptable in his sight, then we've got to do something about the content that we ingest. We've got to take some responsibility and think carefully about the TV shows that we watch, the YouTubers we subscribe to, the podcasts we listen to, the, the books that we read. Now, as Pastor John would say, don't hear what I am not saying. I'm not saying you need to stop watching TV. I'm not saying you need to delete YouTube from your phone or anything like that. What I am saying is that we would all be much better off if we spent more time reflecting on God's Word, reflecting on the beauty and truth of Scripture. Just think about how much your relationship with God would grow if you committed to spending more and more time meditating on the law of the Lord, if you spent more time reflecting on the beauty and worth of God's word, we've already seen that God's word transforms us. So if we get more of God's word into our mind and into our lives, it'll revive us as David has told us it does. God's word will help us to grow in wisdom. It will enlighten our eyes and bring joy to our hearts. Grace Church, don't you want that? Don't you want the Lord to be working in your heart like that? Okay, this is going to sound a little corny, but I hope you'll forgive me. Instead of garbage in, garbage out, don't you want more of God's word in so that more of God's word goes out and seeps out into your life. So this is really where I want to leave you with a challenge for the new year. I want to challenge you simply to this. Get into God's word more. Maybe you already have a habit of of getting into God's word on a daily basis. Praise the Lord. I hope you've been encouraged to remember what the Lord is doing in your heart as you read and study his word. But I think all of us could use even more of God's word. From the oldest saints to the youngest children among us, we all need more of God's word. Let me get specific. Students, kindergarten, all the way up through college and beyond, you need more of God's word. Little kids, even if you don't know how to read yet, you need more of God's word. So it's time to ask your parents to keep on reading the Bible to you. For the oldest saints among us who've been walking faithfully with the Lord for decades and decades and decades, you need, more of the Lord, the, the, you need more of God's word in your life. We all do. So I want to offer up three challenges or three commitments that I would encourage you to make as we head into the new year. The first is this. Commit to showing up to church. It seems not like the first one you might have thought of. But remember, as God's word is read and preached, especially in the body of believers, the Lord changes us. The Lord transforms his people. So I want to challenge you to commit to being here, Lord's day after Lord's day. Schedule out your weeks so that you can be here with us to open God's word so that the Lord can nourish you So he can revive your soul as we're gathered together. Okay, number two, commit to getting into God's word on your own. Getting into God's word on your own. Pick a Bible reading plan and aim to stick with it. I'll remind you we've got some printed off on that blue table over there that'll help you read the whole Bible in a year. It's been awesome for me in my own relationship with the Lord. And so I, I challenge you to, to consider doing that plan. Or maybe you've got another Bible reading plan that works better for you and your schedule. And, and maybe instead of doing the whole Bible in a year, you're going to do just a small chunk and dive really, really deep. I think that's awesome as well. But the point is, I want you to commit to getting into God's word on your own. Number three, commit to getting into God's word in community. This is going to look differently depending on a number of variables, but I want to encourage you to to find a way to read and study God's word with other believers. If you have family that lives under the same roof, I'd encourage you to try family worship, to sit down as a family, to read God's word, maybe sing a hymn together and, and You know, even if you've got little kids, I've got little kids, they're squirmy and I know what it's like, but it's so worth it to make it a habit to open God's word together as a family. Or maybe for you, getting into God's word and community looks like joining a men's or a women's Bible study. Or maybe it looks like joining a community group. In fact, I'll just put in a plug uh, next week. All of our community group leaders are going to be commissioned in the worship service. They'll all be up here. We're going to pray for them and commission them for a new year of ministry. And so if you've been wondering, like, maybe it's time for me to get into a community group. Okay, next week, look at those people, and all of them would love to have you in their group. Find one of them. Ask, or ask Pastor Brad and say, I want to be a part of this community where we can open God's word together. Okay, I'm going to add one more that's not in the slides, but I, I would challenge you to consider getting into God's word with a friend who doesn't know the Lord. I think oftentimes when we have unbelieving friends and neighbors who claim to reject God, they're rejecting a God that they know almost nothing about. So if you can invite them to say, hey, would you be willing to just study a book of the Bible with me? Let's grab coffee, let's talk about life, and let's actually read this Bible together. Let's sit down and actually read it. I think you'll be amazed what the Lord can do through that. Again, I just want to encourage you to get more of God's word into your life. Commit to showing up to church. Commit to reading God's word on your own. Commit to reading God's word in community, whatever that might look like for you. And so here's what I want to do. In just a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we'll sing one more song. But before I pray to close out the sermon, I want to give you a moment to think about how you might apply Psalm 19 to your life. Think about maybe is there a commitment you need to make as we turn over the leaf into a new year? Maybe you would even just say, hey, I'm going to read and pray Psalm 19 verse 14 and make this my prayer. and and wonder what the Lord might want me to do in response heading into the new year. So let me give you a few moments to to really just sit and think about this and then I'll close us in prayer. Lord Jesus, what a joy it is to remember that your word is perfect. That your word is sure, that your word is right, that it rejoices our hearts, that your word endures forever. Lord, I ask that you would grow in our hearts a desire for your word. Would you help us to want it more? Help us to consider your word to be even more to be desired than gold and sweeter than honey. Lord, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. (music)